All right, if you want to open up to Joshua chapter 7, that's where we will be today. Um, so last night was super disappointing with the D-backs losing. I don't know if you guys are following that. Um, you, you know, it's not often that our teams here in Phoenix make it to the playoffs, but I was reminded of how much of an emotional roller coaster the playoffs are. I mean, the D-backs swept the Dodgers like a week ago, and that is, as a Phoenix sports fan, about as good as it gets, sweeping an L.A. team. And my dad is a Dodgers fan, and he has turned my son Ezra into one, so last week was just sweet for me. Um, And then they go to Philadelphia, and they get whooped the first two games, and it's like, oh, the season's over, and they come home, they win two games, and our hopes are back up again. And I'm like, I am ready to get hurt again. I'm back in. Let's do this. And then, of course, they lose, and it hurts. Uh, Victory and setbacks. Like, that is what you see. Their season isn't over. It's not looking good. I bring that up, though, because the story today is about victory and setbacks. Uh, In fact, it's the first setback that we see in the book of Joshua for God's people. And as we look at the victories and setbacks, really, that is life. Life is full. Victory, setback. Victory, failure. Victory, losses. And, um, and so it is with the story today. Um, the story opens with four phrases that are, are said that really kind of like paints the picture for where the story is going. And if you've been tracking with the book of Joshua, last week we had the battle of Jericho with the walls falling down. And last week wraps up Joshua chapter 6 is really where this, this opens. The last verse of chapter 6, it says this, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. So last story ends, pretty high note, pretty good victory for Joshua, and his fame spreads throughout the land. And then Joshua 7, verse 1 says, but but the Israelites were unfaithful. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted Things. Things are going well, but, and then the story pivots. If you were a youth pastor in the 90s, you would make a joke about this is a big but right here in the Bible. Like, it used to be funny. Okay, so, but the, the Israelites, but they were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. We're going to talk about those devoted things. We've seen these, this phrase, the devoted things, pop up throughout the book of Joshua. And it was basically uh, the devoted things were these idols that would ensnare the hearts of people that they're told to have nothing to do with. And then it says, Akon, we're going to pronounce it Akon. There's, there's the accent here that I can't pronounce. So for the sake of English, Akon, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them of these devoted things. So it kind of goes through his lineage here. This man, Akon, says that he takes these devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So very quickly it goes from the Lord's with Joshua, his fame is spreading, but the Israelites are unfaithful with regard to devoted things. This guy named Akon takes some of them, and the Lord's anger burns against Israel. And this sets up the story. Here's how the story goes. I'm going to read through this chapter. Hang with it. It's a little long, uh, but the story is, uh, it's really just incredible as we get through the details of this. It says, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. And we're going to pronounce that Ai. I think it's Ai. It's not artificial intelligence. It's Ai. We're going to pronounce it Ai. 
Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, in the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said to him, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do, do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So this phrase, their hearts melted in fear, has been used, but it hasn't been used for this group of people. It hasn't been used, it's been used for the people they're up against. But now their hearts melt in fear. This is the first defeat that they've experienced in the promised land. This town, I, it's about 12 miles from Jericho. Up until now, everything's going great. It was like everything they touched turned to gold. God had worked miraculously, and now they suffer this defeat, and it just shocks them. It just, they had, it, they're just overcome by, um, by the failure of it, and here's how Joshua responds. It says, verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes And he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us, bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan, Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us, and they will wipe our name from the earth. What then will you do with your own great name? This is how Joshua responds to the setback. It's a little dramatic, right? Falls on his face. I mean, 36 people died in this battle, and he's like, He's ready to throw it all out. I mean, for him to say this, like, why in the world did you let us come over here? Why did you bring us to this place? Just incredibly, like, dramatic, this lament where he cries out to God. Verse 10 says, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Verse 13, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel, and you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. The family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. And then it's going to get awkward because whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. Along with all that belongs to him, he has violated the covenant the Lord has, and has done 
an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua and Israel came forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerahites were chosen. They had the clan of the Zerahites come forward, and families by, by families in Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Can't imagine what this would have been like for this man. Stands up in front of everyone. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe, in the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the Israelites spread them out before the Lord. Can't imagine what the scene would have felt like. And here's how it ends. Then Joshua, together with all the Israelites, took Achan, son of Zerah, and the silver, the robe, the gold bar, and his sons and daughters and cattle and donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that they had to the valley of Achor, which means trouble. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And after Achan, they heaped up large piles of rocks, which remain to this day. The Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place was called the valley of Achor ever since. Yeah, you you can't flannel graph this story either. Like, it is, wow. I mean, unbelievably harsh. Like, we read that, and it's like, man, burned down on religion, you know? Like, imagine what Akar's, you know, (laughs) like, this is unbelievable violence that is done here. And you read it, and it makes you feel uncomfortable, and it should make you feel uncomfortable. We talked about this with the book of Joshua. When we are reading it, reading it can be a jarring experience, especially if this is your first time reading scripture, especially if you're used to just reading through the New Testament. Some of the stuff happens in the New Testament, but it is a jarring experience, the details of this. When we started this series, I opened up with this quote from Robert Hubbard, who wrote the NIV application commentary. He says this, reading can be a jarring experience. The book of Joshua presents itself, warts and wars and all. And it asks readers to let it tell its story from its point of view and out of its ancient context. It asks them to give it the benefit of the doubt and to permit it to speak to them. What we have here is an ancient story from an ancient context from a tribal group of people. And there are consequences for the decisions that they make. And it is a violent world that they live in. And as we read it, we are reminded it comes from this ancient context. And yet there's something that it teaches us about the decisions we make, about the community that we're in, about what God is up to. And and what I want to do is learn from a couple of these characters. Uh, We'll look at, at Joshua, we'll look at Achan, And here's what we learned from Joshua in this story. Like, he's the leader, and this all happens. Uh, 
Joshua, everything's going great for him. He's taken over for Moses. His fame is spreading. And we're reminded that sometimes we are most vulnerable to failure when we are successful. Sometimes we are the most vulnerable to failure when everything is going well. Everything is, is going great. We have momentum. We, we, we think that we are like indestructible. We think we can't be defeated by anything. That is often when we are most vulnerable to failure. For him, his fame grows. And how this story starts, he's this leader, uh, he's a military strategist, and he's the one that initiates this attack on I. It never tells us that God says to do it. Joshua says, we're going to go do this. And we're going to send out spies because that's what I do. And we're, here's the strategy. And, and, oh, it doesn't sound like they have that much going on there. We won't need to, to take everyone. So there's this, like, overconfidence with him. There's this complacency with him. And he thinks, man, just everything we do, it, he, he stops like when he go before Jericho, he, he comes and he falls and he prays before God. Here he doesn't do this. He takes it on his own accord. God doesn't initiate this. Joshua does. The second thing we learn is that, um, do, that we shouldn't quickly forget what God has done. Don't quickly forget the things that God has done. For Joshua, he initiates this, then there's a setback. And what does he do? Like, he goes to the worst-case scenario, and he starts saying, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the river and deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only they would have been content to stay back. He's completely forgotten his story. How quickly he has forgotten his story. That, that God, that the story that he is a part of, God, they were slaves in Egypt. God miraculously freed them from the people they were enslaved to. Parts the Red Sea, they come through the Red Sea, they have this wild story of surviving in the wilderness where God's providing daily for them. They get ready to move into the promised land, and God, God heaps up the Jordan River, and they pass through it on dry ground. They get stuck with a sentinel city, Jericho. God fills the walls of Jericho again and again and again. God provides, God miraculously delivers, God shows up in ways that surprises them. And one setback, and right away, they're, they're saying, why did you bring us here? Why didn't you just leave us on the other side of the river? How quickly we forget what God does. C.S. Lewis, he says it this way, Christians, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. Because our default is to, to, to be forgetful. The God who has brought about salvation, the God who has done so much and has entrusted us with so much, how quickly, it's like, what have you done for me lately? So the first type of resistance, the first type of setback that hits us, we're throwing everything out. And then the third thing we learned from Joshua is this, that don't blame God for your bad decisions and judgment. Like, he's the one that wanted to do this attack. God doesn't say, Joshua, go do that. He's the one that gets them into this situation. And right away, he's like, why did you bring us here? Why did you have us cross the river only to leave us in this place where we're going to be destroyed? He doesn't take any ownership of it. It's all like, God, why have you done this? Why have you let this happen? We'd be better off back on the other side of the river. David Jackman commentating on it says this, these are the words of a man in despair, fed by panic. What began as a flawed assessment of I 
based on complacency and trust in human agency, has now morphed into a flawed interpretation of God's salvation purposes based on just one reversal. So because of his flawed assessment and his, his, his decision to go and to take the city, and it's based on complacency or overconfidence, it's based on trust in human agency, and it didn't work out. Now he has this morphed view and morphed flaw, he's this flawed interpretation of who God is. And what he does is right away is he starts to blame God. It's almost like this default position of the human heart when things don't go our way. And what I'm not talking about here is when there are some things that happen in life that are outside of our control and, and, and are incredibly disappointing. But, but there's other times where it's like we, we have just made decisions, we have gotten ourselves into to situations that don't work out, and our default is to say, we're just going to, it's God's fault for doing this. You might call it like a misdirected mourning. Misdirected mourning, where he's mourning like the setback, but it's misdirected. There's no ownership of his own decisions and judgment. Because of that complacency, because of that trust in the wrong things, he has this more and flawed interpretation of God's salvation purposes. But then we also find that God can take his despair. God, God absorbs it. He says, bring it, get it all out. Fall, he falls at his feet. He's crying out, and God sits there, and he listens. And then he says, stand up. Like, this happened. It's terrible. It was devastating. People died. But here's what we're going to do next. This is what we learn from Joshua. Here's what we learn from Achan in this story. In Achan's story, we learn that temptation's lies can blind us to reality and deafen us to consequences. Temptation's lies can blind us to reality and they can deafen us to consequences. You see these, these devoted things that Achan takes. There's a story behind it. Going all the way back into Deuteronomy, we're told the carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it's an abomination to the Lord your God. In Joshua 6, before the battle of Jericho, they're told that the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her and her house will be spared. But keep away from the devoted things, so you will not bring about destruction by taking any of them in. These devoted things, what God was saying was, I have freed you from the Egyptians, these people who have enslaved you. But I have freed you to live as free people. And you're moving into a land where a different type of slavery is at work. And the things of this earth that people pursue, that they put their hope in, that they idolize, has a way of ensnaring the heart. And I haven't freed you from slavery in Egypt so that you could be slaves to these idols in the promised land. So stay away from these devoted things because they will lead to your destruction. They will lead you to a life that is away from me, that will leave you exhausted, weary, unfulfilled. And here's what Aachen says in verse 21. He says, when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And they are hidden in the ground inside my tent. 
He said, I saw them, I coveted them, and I took them. I saw them, I coveted them, and I took them. These are an echo of the creation story with Adam and Eve. God sets Adam and Eve up in the garden, and there's harmony, and there's wholeness. And he says, I have created you to be in relationship with me and to be in relationship with each other, and there's harmony here, and there's things here I want you to stay away from. And the devil shows up, and he tries to convince them, God is holding out on you. And we know the story, Eve takes the fruit, and she, it says she sees it, she covets it, and she takes it. She sees it, she desires it, she takes it. Adam shows up, sees it, covets it, takes it. God shows up, what does Adam do? He blames Eve, right? Right off the bat, he blames Eve. What does Eve do? She said, I've been, I've been misled. I saw, I desired, I took. And the same lie continues throughout life. We, we think if I just have this thing, then I will be happy. We see, we desire, we covet, and we take. For Aachen, the gold and the silver, and it represents this greed. The greed that he, that he wanted, God says, don't take it, keep away from it. And out of his greed, he goes for it. The robe of Babylonia. Babylon is a superpower of the day. It plays to his vanity and his pride. He wants to be in vogue. He, there's this image he's trying to uphold here. The problem is those things, the greed and the pride, finding your worth in those things always leave you empty, exhausted, and wanting more, pursuing more and more at the cost of those around you. This is why God says, stay away from it. They're blinded by the greed and the pride. Israel must destroy these devoted things, or Israel will be destroyed by the devoted things. And God says, destroy those devoted things. They will ensnare you. Here's another thing we learn. Surprising defeats can often be traced back to secret sins. Surprising defeats can often be traced back to secret sins. We see this, um, my, my position as a pastor, like you, we, we see when, when megachurch celebrity pastors fall, and it's like, man, they were so successful, I can't believe that happened. It's like, it can happen to, to anyone. It can happen um, where, where your private life and the things that you hide always have a way of, of coming out and, and leading to defeat. Um, so we can hide it for a while, but at some point, we, we go into this like image management mode, and we're constantly trying to hide the image that we have. We're constantly trying to um, say, like, everything on the outside looks great. On the inside, though, we're ensnared by something. And the more that we try to hide it, the more we try to manage our image, the more we live a life that we're not called to live because we're not living in reality. So there's this constant lying and covering up and trying to, to put out a certain image. But God invites us to live a life that is authentic and real, that's not a lie. We're not, we're not created to live with this facade where I have everything all together and I'm successful all the time. And like we're called to live authentic lives with each other. Confession has a way of doing this. Maybe you grew up with the word confession and it makes you itchy and, and there's all sorts of baggage that can come around that. But what confession is, is it's owning up to reality. It's saying, here are the things that I'm really struggling with, the things that have ensnared me. And if I can't get them out in the open, if I, if I can't bring them to light, I can't receive help and healing. 
and I'm heading towards a defeat. And then the last thing is very private sins always lead to public consequences. We could think, well, this just affects me, this, this thing that has ensnared my heart. It doesn't actually affect anyone else, and so I can deal with it on the side. The problem is sin always emerges. And the thing that we think we can keep private will turn into something that is public. And that is destructive to relationships. It's destructive to living life. Two things that we see here with Akinson that he, he, he tries to keep private, that it leads to public consequences. One is because they live in this strong group culture. It's an ancient context. They're a tribal people. They're, they're strong group people. For us as Americans, this is hard to understand because we are very individualistic. And I love our individualistic culture. Like, I, I was in Europe for two weeks this summer. I couldn't wait to get back so I could hang out in my backyard with my brick wall and not have to talk to anybody. Like, we, we, we have this rugged individualism, but with that, there are unintended consequences. But with that also is this, we, we sometimes have a under, hard time understanding the context of Scripture because in the ancient world and in the Eastern world, um, this strong group culture meant that the decisions you make affects everyone around you. And the decisions that Aachen makes leads to having other people killed. Um, so the, the Old Testament points to this. It's not just Aachen's sin, but it's called Israel's sin. There was a, a, a community, a strong group culture, the collectiveness to the decisions that they made. And so like, it wasn't just that he had messed up, but they all suffered for it. People died because of his greed. People lost loved ones because of his pride. Their momentum in that land was gone. So you can't just have this thing that you hide and you think it doesn't affect everyone else. It always affects, especially the people in proximity to you. Then there's the ancient context of this story where we hear about the violence of it. We think, goodness gracious, why would they make an example out of Aachen? But when you live in a strong group culture and those decisions affect everybody, that this is put on display, the violence of this age. We still live in a violent world. We see that in the news. But I can't imagine the violence that they live in 3,000 years ago and the punishment that comes down because of this thing that affected the whole community. And if you were the other people and you're, you, you've lost your, your father, you've lost your brother, you, you've lost someone in this battle, and then you find out that Aachen has all this stuff that we're told not to keep, the rage that would build in that moment. And you see it play out here. But what you find in the Old Testament when we read these passages that are just jarring, the Old Testament is pointing us towards the idea that this world is not as it should be. There's dysfunction and violence and brokenness. And the people of God are trying to figure out how, to, how this all plays out, how to navigate this world, and there's destruction, destruction and violence and brokenness. And you see this, this continuing and continuing and continuing, and the people of God had this hope that in the midst, when you look around, you see all the things that are wrong with the world, that at some point God's going to intervene and make things right. And there was this anticipation for a Messiah to come and to bring about the restoration of all things to bring about the renewal of all things. There was this hope and this anticipation that everything that's wrong with this story could be made right. And as they hoped for this Messiah, we know now this side of history, looking back at this story, Jesus comes onto the scene. 
that God loves the world so much that he sends Jesus into it. And all of this story starts to make sense when you realize what Jesus is doing, the violence that's played out and the punishment of this sin. It's scandalous, but so is the cross. Here's what 1 Peter says about Jesus. He says, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in the body, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to the sins and live for righteousness. And it's by his wounds that you have been healed. The scandal of the cross is that all those consequences from sin, now they land on Jesus. And it's violent, and it's a tragedy, and Jesus dies for sin. We see Achan, Achan dying for the sin of what he's done, but Jesus dies for our sin. Romans 5, Paul says this, you see just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this story, no one's dying for Achan. In this story, Achan's dying for his sin. Romans 5 goes on to say, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, so death through sin. And in this way, death became, came to all people because all sin. There's this strong group culture, this strong group thinking with the, with the people in the New Testament too. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespasses of one man death reigned, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? And he's using this example, talking about the story of Adam, but he's talking about what Jesus does. Consequently, just as one man trespass result in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification in life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man and the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteousness. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This story tells us something about Jesus as well. When you look at Joshua, you look at Achan, you look at the sin, you look at the punishment of the sin, what this story of Jesus is about is grace. His death that was scandalous and violent, he dies for the sin of the world. He dies so that we're not in Achan's shoes, suffering what Achan suffers from, experiencing what he experiences. The grace of Jesus gives us freedom. It takes the punishment of all of that and offers us life eternal. We're going to celebrate that in two ways today. That this grace that has been given offers you life. It offers you freedom. 
And it comes from the story of the cross. Two things we'll do as we end our time today. One is we're going to take communion together. Um, and Tyler's going to come up and end us in communion. And as we sing a song, we're going to move to baptism. We have one baptism today. What baptism does is it celebrates this going from death to life. And so we'll have a baptism. If you've never been baptized before, it's this inward expression of this outward expression of this inward transformation that you've received this grace that we would love for you to, to join us as we baptize today. But Tyler, why don't you come up and lead us to communion and then we'll, we'll move to baptism. Um, it's Romans 6 that tells us that the wages of sin is death. Uh, what's that saying is what we deserve, what we've earned, is what Aachen got. But the good news is the second half of that verse says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we, um, in Jesus, got what he deserved. And he took what we deserved. Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the, door, at the door and knock. If those who hear my voice open the door, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. What we do in communion is we celebrate that fact that God comes into us. We celebrate that he took what we deserved and we got what he earned. Psalms tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are all who find refuge in God. It's the Apostle Paul who tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to tell us that in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes again. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to the table. Um, as we sing, you can stand and come and, and receive this, this communion, this grace. There's also the gluten-free option in the back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your love for us, that the creator of the heavens and the earth knows us by name. Lord, we just ask that uh, you would light up the dark places in our hearts, that if there's things that we've been keeping hidden, that we would find a way to confess, to share that. We know that in, in the light, sin has no power. God, as we come to this table, would you meet us where we are? We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.